Thanks for listening to the Distribution Podcast. If you like this content, you may also enjoy the webinar I hosted featuring previous podcast guests, Heather Furstrom-Border and Jennifer Stevens, co-founders and managing partners at Alliance Global Advisors. You can now access highlights from the conversation on junipersquare.com forward slash GP resilience, all one word. You will learn about the best practices GPs can use to differentiate themselves from the competition and continue to build meaningful relationships with current and prospective investors. I'm Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, and you're listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. Join us as we sit down with experts from commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity to discuss trends in technology, fundraising, and private markets. We'll cover this and much more. On today's episode, I sit down with Sabina Reeves, Chief Economist and Head of Insights and Intelligence for CBRE Investment Management. With over $140 billion of assets under management, CBRE IM is one of the world's leading real assets investment managers. Sabina is responsible for the firm's 30-member real assets research team that has a specific role in selecting the economic scenarios and macro risk assessments that power the firm's proprietary real assets forecasts. In addition, Sabina has executive responsibility for the firm's 20-member analytics and risk measurement team. Today's conversation is a masterclass on the impact of the global macro environment on direct and listed real estate markets around the world. We dive deeper into how North America real estate compares in the global context and how real estate investment managers and operators may want to think about the risks and opportunities of investing during this and the next cycle. Specifically, we discuss the three generational shifts underway, the geopolitical shift, the monetary regime change, and the impact of tech on the built environment. As we know, real estate is a global business, and from the UK, Sabina manages a global team and regularly interacts with business and client stakeholders of CBRE Investment Management. Let's get into it. Sabina, thanks for joining me on the show today. Oh, it's really fun to be on, Brandon. Thanks for inviting me. I like to start all of our episodes by asking my guests to introduce themselves, talk a little bit about uh, your role, uh, the organization that you work for, so we can orient ourselves uh, for the balance of the conversation. So my name is Sabina Reeves. I am the Chief Economist and Head of Insights and Intelligence at CBRE Investment Management. So stuff to unpack there. CBRE IM is the investment management arm of CBRE, as you'd imagine. We have about $140 billion of assets under management, and that's across all three regions. That could be listed, unlisted, direct investments, indirect debt, and equity. But it also includes infrastructure, which is a newer sleeve to our platform and maybe something people aren't as familiar with. And in terms of being head of insights and intelligence, which is not a common terminology in our industry, my team really brings together traditional research into real estate and infra, a quantitative team, which is really cutting edge, and then also performance analytics. And how, before we get into kind of what it is that your team exactly does, tell me a little bit about how you came into the role at CBRE Investment Management and, you know, kind of what you did prior that informed this experience. 
Yeah, it's a weird one, right? Because I don't think a lot of kids grow up knowing really about what commercial real estate is unless they have a family member who works in it. I studied politics, philosophy, and economics at Oxford University, which is a very broad and generic but quite famous degree. I then went on to do a master's in economics at the time when the euro was coming into being. My professor said, why don't you do your thesis on how the lending markets will work in this new world through commercial real estate? And I was like, what, like through like mortgages and houses? He was like, no, commercial real estate. So that was my first introduction to this wild and crazy world of CRE. And then I set up the real estate service at Capital Economics, which is an independent economic consultancy, and just fell in love with the sector, but realized I probably needed to be in it to be truly part of it and effective rather than sitting on the outside. I did a year and a half at what's now MSCI Real Estate uh, just before the uh, financial crisis hit. And luckily, CBRE Investors, as it was then, was hiring for a head of European research. And I made that jump in May 2008. So 15 years ago now, just over 15 years. And it was quite the time to join the real estate industry from the inside. So you've seen a few cycles in your current role. Talk to me through a little bit. How do you think about insights and intelligence juxtaposed against a traditional kind of research role that we often hear about in some of these organizations? You mentioned some of the things that your team is responsible for, traditional research. You know, I think you said quantitative and, and, and maybe even predictive analytics. But how does that all work from like a team organization and a framework, especially given your remit is, you know, across a few different verticals and global? The idea of bringing these teams together, because they already existed in the organization, and to bring them into one place was twofold. First of all, the, the privilege we have running $140 billion of AUM is we have phenomenal proprietary data. And we figured out that if we could somehow bring it together, organize it, and unlock it, we would get insights both from our asset managers, property performance, that would inform what people would think of as conventional market research and forecasting. So the idea was you'd have this amazing sort of feedback loop from each of the individual teams running into the other. And I think it's worked, right? I think we have taken insights from listed into real and we've modeled a lot of our infra forecasting from what we do on the real estate side and so on and so forth. But we also did it, frankly, for our people. A lot of the people who work in these three teams have a lot of the same skill set, qualifications, and we didn't want our really strong talents to feel siloed. We wanted them to have really interesting, fluid and portable careers to run bespoke learning and development just for them, you know, very high-end coding programs, that sort of thing. And it's enabled us to create a really phenomenal pool of talent that feels they have real career development and are seeing our business holistically and therefore helping our platform holistically. And and before we move into the the market and what you're seeing, you know, talk to us a little bit about some of the tools that you're using. How is kind of AI or or the large language models impacting, you know, the the massive amounts of data that you and your team are working with? 
Yeah, this is obviously a very fashionable and hot button topic. Um, and we are certainly incorporating these uh, tools into the breadth of our business, actually, not just what we do in insights and intelligence. So that could be how we automate and power the construction of an IC memo, including the inputs that come from my team on the underwriting side with cap rates and NOI growth. And it could also be, for instance, creating, I always joke about it as autovena. You know, I've created macro forecasts for 10 years and database files. Let's have AI run through those and see what it thinks are the coolest 10 charts and the big narrative story to sort of do the first draft of that report. And maybe it's coming up with more interesting charts than I would have done if, they, if I'd have picked them myself. But it's really running through the whole platform. And I think the only reason we are able to use it in that way where we are, because we're just at the start, right? It's so exciting, is because we have invested for a number of years in very boring, less fashionable things like data governance, data systematization, bringing it all together in our data lake. And, and frankly, just bringing the team together in the way that we did was super helpful because it meant that we already had the kind of data foundation upon which to then have these interesting new tools interrogate and hopefully give us insights. Excellent. Well, I think it's it's fascinating. And I think your point around data governance is spot on. It's something that we talk a lot about, which is how do you use these new technologies and tools to make you run your business better? And it all starts with you know, good data coming in in order to get good data coming out or, you know, garbage in, garbage out, as they say. Absolutely. So, I you know, we're in real assets, right? So we have the worst data. This is not equities and fixed income. And the, the proportionate time you have to spend on the data cleaning, it, it's not the fashionable bit, but it's the bit that's so necessary. Let's pivot the conversation and talk a little bit about the the markets. You know, I want to start broad. We're recording this at the end of October, 2023, and it feels like things are changing by the day, if not by the hour. So I want to be mindful of the timing of our conversation. You know, given your role and given CBRE IM's global reach, what are the kind of main themes that you're hearing from your clients on the investor side that they're thinking about as it relates to markets today? Absolutely. So as we travel the world and talk to clients, and isn't it lovely we can do that again now? I think the questions fall into three buckets and they really relate to the three big generational changes that are hitting us all at the same time. The first I would say is geopolitical. You know, we have this amazing peace dividend after the fall of the Soviet Union in the early 90s, a 20, 25 year run up in globalization. It was so easy and frictionless to port capital around the globe, people. And that feels like it's falling apart and, and is, is causing greater volatility. You see that most recently in the Middle East. So a lot of questions about can we still take capital from here to there? Is it safe? What's stranded asset risk? How does this volatility feed into the macro view? That's a whole bunch of questions. The second big generational change is monetary policy regime. You know, these monetary policy regimes last 10 to 15 years. And when they change, that fundamentally changes the price of real estate. So as you can imagine, the vast majority of questions from clients, particularly in the US, have been around what is going on with the US Treasury? And is testing 5% a temporary thing? What is the new normal in interest rates? What is the new normal in inflation? So that's the kind of the macro bucket. And then the third big structural change that is hitting us all at the same time is, I would say, technology hitting real estate. 
which obviously we saw very visibly in retail. We're kind of going through seeing it very visibly in office. But we feel in your peripheral vision, you should be thinking about it with respect to logistics too. So a lot of questions on that as regards office and just how long is it going to take to reprice? When are the banks going to start spitting out assets? But just given the nature of our platform and our sector, it's a lot around what truly is modern and future-proof logistics as well. So maybe let's take them in that order then. You know, if I'm you know, sitting in a room and I'm a client and picking your brain, which I guess I am doing real time right now. You know, what, what is the house view on what's happening in the, the geopolitical? Like, how would you put some of these different issues on the table, specifically the ones that have the greatest probability of having a downstream impact on commercial real estate market fundamentals, values, et cetera. And I think maybe do it with the the global perspective. And I think most of our listeners are probably in North America and Europe. I think it's important to understand the interconnectivity of the global kind of monetary system and the geopolitical system. So, so take it broad for us and then we can narrow it down to the, some of the specifics. Yeah, I mean, I think this move, right, from globalization and extremely lean, mean supply chains and not really thinking much about regime risk to a much more regionalized, fractured, multipolar world has absolutely got concrete impact on real estate because it feeds into inflation and interest rates. So if you think of real estate as a price taker from from interest rates, infrastructure as well to some extent, then then it absolutely has an impact. I think the way we think of the world now is that, that it's multipolar, that you've got you know North America plus Europe maybe in one block, you've got China maybe in a trading block with parts of Asia, and then you've got this amazingly large, powerful, economically vibrant non-aligned block with places like India in it, it just injects volatility and risk into the global economy. And it may not change your baseline forecast, but it certainly changes the chance of tail events and sort of sudden explosions, very tragically, of political risk, as we saw in the Middle East over the last couple of weeks. In terms of the concrete impact on our on our forecasts, especially with what's happened in the Middle East, but also Russian invasion of Ukraine, you really start looking at energy prices and production, commodity prices, and how that feeds into consumer price inflation in the markets that may be closer to your investment portfolios, such as the US and Europe. And then that obviously feeds into your interest rate forecasts. And it's one of the reasons why we are in the kind of higher for longer rate camp, the stickier inflation camp, because we just see that in that kind of geopolitical environment, it's going to be harder to move labor around to get rid of labor market tightness. There's going to be more energy price volatility. And it's going to just be that harder to to get that last mile down from, say, three and a half percent inflation to two and a half percent. There's just a lot going on in the world right now. And how about as it relates, you know, to the to the very specific and, and more recent activities in the Middle East? How has that impacted your forecast or has it had an impact on your forecast for kind of the the, the global real estate values or, or kind of market fundamentals? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, right, because. 
it, it almost feels like the financial market response has been pretty sanguine and pretty muted, like more muted than I might have expected. You know, we saw a bit of safe haven buying of gold. So gold's back to where it was in terms of pricing sort of last winter. You saw the oil price kind of bounce up a bit to $95 a barrel, but it didn't breach 100 and it sort of it's dipped back down to 90 at the time of podcasting. Who knows what happens next? We saw a little bit of safe haven buying of yen and Swiss franc, but it, it didn't feel like it had a big impact. And to me, that says that the financial market presumption is that as horrific and awful as these events are, they're going to remain within the borders of Israel. In other words, that we're not going to see Iran come in or Hezbollah from Lebanon, and it's going to mean, be, sort of continue to be contained and not broaden out into a wider Middle Eastern conflict. I think if that presumption is challenged over the coming weeks and months, then you will see a lot more turmoil in, in energy and wider commodity prices. For us, the way we reflected it, and we're just doing our Q4 macro house views, we update once a quarter, we did push up our near-term oil and gas price forecast a little bit. And more, I think more importantly, because, you know, you have to approach forecasting with some humility that the base case is, is almost never right, is that we increased our range around that base case. So we know there's the chance of more volatility around it. So there's the kind of current issues going on in, in Ukraine and Russia, Israel and the Middle East. How about some of the broader kind of demographic shifts? You know, I, I know that people talk a lot about what's happening inside of China the growth of India, you've got, you know, some kind of unsettling happening in the, the African continent. But how do you kind of paint the picture of what's happening from a demographic standpoint and how that might create regions that, you know, today aren't really on people's radars, but might emerge as some of the greatest growth opportunities of the next, you know, several decades? Yeah, I mean, demographics is a fascinating one. And I think got a little bit masked, I mean, rightly so, by the pandemic that obviously took the focus of our attention. But that 2020 to 2022 period contained a lot of very significant turning points in world demographics. So the Chinese population shrinking outright, working age population has been shrinking for a bit. Same in Germany, Italy, Spain. When I look around the world, and certainly some of the developed markets plus China that we invest in, it really feeds into your view of long-run trend growth and therefore the capacity of this economy to generate you know, jobs and rental growth and demand for fundamental real estate. And when I look across the world, you do feel when you look at those forecasts that the United States, Canada, and actually UK, interestingly, in Europe, have more positive demographics. But in general, and it's just a matter of time, even in India, which currently has very high growth rates, will also come down over that 20 to 30 period, 30 year period. It's just a matter of when, not if we are getting aging populations. And frankly, that view feeds into a higher for longer interest rate view. It feeds into a lot of our sort of trend macro assumptions, because we look at a world where there are fewer people of working age population having to pay for the longevity of the old. So to me, that's always been a sort of a downward pressure on potential growth. But over the last sort of six months to a year, I've been really fascinated by how far the AI revolution is going to offset that and just unleash greater productivity from that smaller working age population. So it could end up that the two are awash, 
I think it's very brave to try and call which one kind of overpowers the other. But certainly these long run trends, you know, we tend to own real estate for seven to eight years. We sell to someone who's probably going to own for seven to eight years. These longer run trends are really important to us. So I, I guess kind of with that in mind, if we bring it back to the European continent and let, let's, you know, I was in Europe a few weeks ago, as you know, talking to some of our clients and, and other market participants in, in the UK and, and the rest of Europe. And, you know, one of the things that I maybe didn't fully appreciate is some of the turmoil, the economic turmoil and, and you know, political turmoil across the European continent, but more specifically, the impact that that has on investors' ability to allocate capital globally, as well as managers' ability to invest. So given that you sit in the UK, you know, let's spend the next five, five to seven minutes talking about what is going on in Europe today from a, you know, geopolitical global macro perspective. And then, you know, maybe we'll kind of use that as the the entree to begin to talk about some of the market fundamentals. Right. So I think when you look at Europe, you've got to look at what are the drivers of those individual country economies, because they're very, it's a very diverse region. And put that in the context of the idea that globally, we are in a global manufacturing export recession, world trade volumes are down. But the service sector in most markets is absolutely booming. People have money, they want to spend it. Most people who want to have a job have a job and they have three years when they couldn't do anything and they are having fun. So how your individual economy performs depends on the balance of manufacturing and services in that economy. So it comes as no surprise to me that Germany is in a recession because Germany is a manufacturing export economy and it's feeling a little bit the pain of China slowing down. China was a big source of demand for very high value add goods coming out of Germany. So think expensive cars and goods like that. So Germany is in a very specific triple headwind. It's got China slowing and manufacturing exports in general. It's got very poor demographics that have reached that turning point we were discussing earlier. And on top of that, the third thing, it is managing an energy transition away from cheap Russian gas at pace. And it's having to deal with that frictional cost of, of reorienting its economy. So there's a lot going on in Germany right now that isn't necessarily reflective of the rest of Europe. But because it's our largest economy, Obviously, it gets a lot of attention, and rightly so. If you look at a lot of the other economies in Europe, they look much more like the US, right? Very tight labor market. People who are finally starting to see some real wage growth, you know, you're starting to get those collective bargaining contracts come through. So unions arguing for higher wages, particularly amongst blue, blue collar workers, and they're spending that money. And you've only got to look at the UK, which continues to defy expectations of how strong consumer spending is and how strong that leisure component of the economy is, despite the fact that, you know, interest rates have gone up so rapidly. So it's a tale of, of two economies in Europe right now. And when you think about the impact that Europe's having, you talked a little bit about the connection between, you know, Germany and China. How about the other way? Is there is there a strong correlation or connection between the European economy or the different economies within Europe and you know, whether it's outbound investing into North America or just kind of general connectivity between the two markets. Obviously, we're closely connected from a trading standpoint already. Yeah, although less so than we used to be. So when I started working in 2000, so people can age me now, date me, it used to be that, you know, the old cliche was when the US, you know, sneezes, Europe catches a cold. 
But it's actually the other way around now. I would say that the, the trade dependence is very much to China. And what saved us really from having worse, worse recessions than we might have done in both the GFC and the pandemic was China pumping demand into the European economy. So that is the more, the more meaningful sort of, I would say, trading relationship. In terms of what it feels like to be in Europe right now, I mean, depending on how you define Europe, we have two shooting wars going on either in our region or on its borders. So that obviously has an impact. But from an absolutely sort of nuts and bolts investment perspective, you know, Europe has always exported capital. It remains a very international oriented region. But there are two things that come to bear here that are very specific. Number one, currency. So with the US dollar being so strong, and you'll especially hear this from Asia Pacific clients, but also from European clients, it becomes more expensive to invest in the United States. It always has a bit of expense because of the tax treatment, but that hedging cost now is an extra consideration. And then the second one is that a lot of our European investors place a very high sort of obsession, I would say, but rightly so, with sustainability. And they want to invest in a kind of building that they feel is meeting sustainable credentials and that is going to perform in a certain way. And because that concern started earlier in Europe than in other parts of the world, a lot more of that stock that's meeting those credentials is in their own home continent. So there's an awful lot of cross-border capital flow within Europe, and maybe less so right now to the US for currency reasons, and also because of the kind of stock they're seeing. Yeah, we certainly hear that from the European investors who have offices on the ground in in, North, in the US in particular, who do find it challenging to find investments that meet their requirements or their thresholds around sustainability in particular. So definitely, definitely understand that perspective. All right. Well, let's bring it to the United States, which is where I sit and I know is an important market for your organization. I don't really know the right way to to lead into the question, but like what you, you mentioned, you know, some of the questions are around, you know, U.S. treasuries and the bond market. Let me just open it up. What is happening? Like, how would you begin to explain the situation? Obviously, there's a lot of different perspectives on is it higher for longer, but maybe let's take a few minutes and kind of unpack what your house view is on some of these topics and what some of the things that market participants should be aware of that could impact shifts in you know one direction or the other over the next kind of call it three to three to six months. It's a great question. It's the most asked question. And I would say that I come to it with humility, like we did not predict 130 basis points run up in the UST over six weeks. But I would like to think we were on the right side of consensus and thinking there was this risk of going higher. I would say that I approach US bond markets just like I approach real estate, which is supply demand, and then you get a yield, you get a price. And I would say on the demand side for US treasuries, we just took away the biggest source of demand from 2008 to 2021 which was the U.S. Federal Reserve. They've reversed quantitative easing into quantitative tightening. They're letting bonds run off. In some cases, they're selling. So there's just less demand for this stuff, which would imply the price falls and the yield rises. On top of that, I think you are seeing some pullback in Asian purchases of U.S. treasuries, uh, partly because of de-dollarization, this idea of deglobalization. You're getting a trading sort of area around the Chinese currency in parts of Asia and commodity trades settled in yuan rather than U.S. dollars. So again, less demand, same supply, price, price falls, yield rises. And then the third thing I would add on the demand side is all the attraction of the U.S. bond is 
you'll have an amazingly robust economy, but your fiscal deficits are high and getting wider. And it's not just the US, right? That is something in common with all Western developed markets, you know, shrinking working age population, increased cost of aging populations, healthcare. We all have to pay for infrastructure. We've got to pay for net transition. So there's less demand for the bonds. There's going to be more issuance because we all need to pay for all of this amazing transitional stuff that we need to do. So to me, when you look at it from that perspective, it's not surprising that we've seen yields trend higher and prices fall. But the magnitude and the speed of it is surprising. So this is only, if it continues, the third year apparently on record that U.S. Treasuries have produced a negative return consecutive years. And the speed of that adjustment and the volatility of that adjustment, the intraday ranges in the U.S. bond have been quite quite stunning over recent weeks. And I really think it is genuinely the fixed income market coming to terms with, gosh, this is a generational change in monetary policy. It's a generational change in supply and demand for bonds. We need to figure out where we're going to settle out at. And so what is the house view on where things are going to settle out and when? I mean, are you bold enough to to have have a view on what the future holds given the volatility and the amount of rapid change that we've seen? Yeah, I mean, we have to have a view, right? Because we're underwriting real assets on the back of a view on bond yields. I think our view is that we're at the top of the Fed funds rate tightening cycle, um, but you'll hear arguments, right? No one expects another rise at the next meeting, but you will find people expecting an increase thereafter, depending on the data. And um, I think we think we're at the top because we think the bond yield is doing the job of the Fed for it. I think where we would be more bearish than the consensus, I think money markets are pricing in a first cut somewhere between June and September. I think we think it's going to be later than that because we feel that we will only just be hitting 3% inflation at the end of next year. And we think that the Fed, having arguably raised too slowly and too late, is going to be reluctant to cut too early. It's going to want to see that that last mile in that inflation battle is truly won. Not that we think inflation gets back to two, but just that it's below three. So with all that said, we think that you could easily see U.S. Treasuries in that four and a half to five percent range we've been experiencing for certainly the first half of next year. And thereafter, it really depends on how far this tightening in credit, these higher rates start impacting the credit sensitive sectors and you start seeing economic growth really weaken. But I think people who are holding on to that survive to 25 mantra, we think that's kind of like a false, not a false hope, but it's a false heuristic because we are just moving to a new normal. The good news is the new normal looks very much like the old normal of the 2000s when I started being in this industry, which is you know, normal rates around sort of four-ish, real rates around one-ish, inflation around three-ish. I mean, we all know how to make money in that environment, but it's just getting from the QE era to the new normal. And that kind of that transition is going to be a bit bumpy in the road. Going back, there's a lot of people listening who were not in the real estate business, maybe some who weren't even born in that era with, you know, nominal rates of four-ish, real rates, one-ish, inflation, three-ish. What did that look like? Maybe do you have a do you have a recollection of how do we think about real estate, you know, transactions and valuations differently in that economic environment than we do today? I mean, I can really freak those people out because I remember the 80s when, you know, interest rates were in the were in the teens, inflation were in the teens. And actually in that period, property yields used to be lower than bond yields because people prefer to hold corporate credit than government credit. So you'd rather have the least a major tenant on an office than hold government credit. This is the early 80s, right? So 
like I say, every 10 to 15 years, everything changes. So hold on to your hats. I think the early 2000s are probably what a lot of people's assumptions about the role of real estate and real assets in a portfolio are based on. This idea that you sit somewhere between bonds and equity, that you are the higher yielding investment, and that in that, that era, you know, core returns used to be more like a six to eight or an eight to 10, that enhance was more like a 15 to 18. And that we kind of got away with it a little bit in the quantitative easing era. Like we could get away with offering people a dividend yield of say two to three percent and a core return of five because, you know, the German bond yield was minus one. So people were happy to be there. So I think it's more just going back to the the days of the 2000s when property and the returns it offered to the investors had to be attractive and, as always, accretive relative to fixed income. Otherwise, why would you do it? And I think a lot of people right now should be and are, I'm not saying it's just us, looking at their product architecture and asking, what are we going to offer to our investors to remain compelling? And there's lots of stuff about real estate and indeed infrastructure that's compelling in that environment, right? Because a higher inflation environment, being in an asset class that provides some kind of inflation protection through the lease, where you can generate NOI growth by improving the asset, where you have all sorts of means to hedge against your, as I said, fixed income, three years taking a bath, equity volatility. I think there's a lot to be said for it. But we just have to make sure we're being bold in adjusting our framework to a new regime because that's what we're in. Yeah, I think you know we need to move beyond the paralysis that exists today and realize that we will we will persist and there's a lot of things that need to happen in order to to unlock that but it's good it's good to remember that real estate existed 20 years ago and it will exist 20 years from now as an important part of everybody's portfolios. You mentioned you think that treasuries will be in the 4.5 to 5% range until at least next year and you know we need to see the economy weaken or economic growth weaken yet Late last week, we came out with the recent GDP numbers, kind of defying the potential for a recession, at least from a from a, a numerical perspective. How do you make, you know, or what do you make of, you know, five percent quarter over quarter GDP growth in the U.S. and and kind of what is the impact that that's having on your Q4 forecasts? Yeah, it's phenomenal, isn't it? And so impressive. We took out, I think, in common with a lot of people, maybe around eighteen months ago, we put in a a beautiful, mild technical recession that would happen this winter. And the beauty of that gorgeous little technical recession was it wouldn't cause too much pain. You wouldn't have too many mass layoffs, but you would bring down inflation. And then the Fed could cut. And then we in real estate could all get back into the market knowing it was all over. And it was just a lovely little forecast. And unfortunately, the real world doesn't work like that. So about, I think it was Six months ago, we took out that US recession view. Now, hotly debated, many people I respect still think there's going to be a mild sort of technical recession as we turn the year. And, you know, I can really see the arguments in favor of it. I think from our perspective, we just see such underlying strength in the labor market. We have seen labor hoarding. You know, people are reluctant to do mass layoffs because they don't know when they're going to hire back if they need to hire back because it's so hard to find good talent out there, speaking to that demographic point. And also this pent up spending and desire for experiential spending continues. And yes, you can argue that people are starting to run down those pandemic savings, but 
for now, it's still pretty strong. And, you know, some I was speaking at the CBRE Power of We Women Excelling Conference in Utah earlier oh, last week, which is a phenomenal event. And someone jokingly asked me, like, when do you think the recession will come if it comes? And I said, well, actually, we're not calling for a recession. We do see a slowdown. We're not calling for a recession. But I think it will be like the weighted average date of whenever Taylor Swift, Beyonce and Madonna finish their world tours. Because, I mean, it sounds like a joke, but these powerful creative artists and businesswomen are injecting such economic growth into the U.S. and global economy. And you can see it micro-locationally as well. I mean, billions they're injecting in. And it's symptomatic of the fact that people, they all still have jobs if they want one. They are all basically getting now real wage uh, real wages growing. And it takes a while for that to burn off. At some point, the mortgage rate pain will feed through auto loan defaults will go up and all that typical stuff will happen. And it will probably happen in a place like the UK first because our mortgages are much more variable rate. But in the US, it's for sure going to take a while to come through. And that's partly, we do have the economic slowdown, but it just takes longer to come through. Therefore, inflation is longer to come down. And that's our higher rates for longer story right there. That might be the uh, soundbite of the podcast. So I uh, I, I think we'll have to see yeah, if... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so what, what you're saying is interesting because, you know, when I talk to a lot of people in our industry, you know, especially those who focus on hospitality, you know, they talk about the strength of, of spending and, and discretionary travel. Obviously, business travel has been back post-COVID, but also the underlying concern is that of consumer demand and, and specifically around consumer debt ballooning and, you know, the consumer's ability to meet their debt obligations and, and, you know, credit card debt is through the roof. Yeah. I don't know if you, you track that. I'm sure you do, but kind of what are your thoughts on us consumer debt and how does that impact the spending patterns that you're seeing that are, you know, keeping the economy afloat and, and driving this, this significant growth in GDP. So first of all, I want to say to all of your listeners, as alarmed as you might be by the us consumer spending and indebtedness picture, it is by far by far not the worst in the world in the economies they cover. Places like South Korea, arguably the UK, you know, there are places all, all across the world that are higher and worse. So you guys aren't unusual. <laughs> and what I would say is, is that the structure of your mortgage market is particularly interesting. And the fact that you do have the longer term mortgages locked in has given you some protection. But the most fundamental point I would make and this is one that my sidekick and, you know, mischief maker in arms, Wei Lu, would say, she she does macro with me at IM, is that a lot of the consumer spending is being driven by the boomer generation and it's being spent out of cash. Similarly, a disproportionate number of the housing sales recently have been driven by the boomers and it's out of cash. So these guys are not necessarily mortgage rate sensitive. Arguably, they're going to be more sensitive to losses on their investment portfolios with what's going on in financial markets. But there is a degree of resilience in that consumer spending story coming through when you look at it generationally. And yes, I did make some headlines, you know, when I talked about concert going and all the, and all the millennials. But fundamentally, there is a lot of strength coming through from the cash-driven economy that is still there. So... Suffice to say, kind of credit card debt in the U.S. in particular is not something that is particularly concerning as kind of a top driver of, you know, macroeconomic health in your view. 
No, it is concerning, but I would just say not more concerning than some of the other markets I look at. So if I were looking as a, as a global allocator of capital, and I'm looking at the United States, and I'm seeing probably the best demographic picture of any ma major market globally, I'm seeing distance from some of the geopolitical tensions that are brewing. I'm seeing incredibly tight labor markets. I am seeing consumers that are by and large robust brackets for now. And I'm also seeing the capacity for the Fed to cut and be responsive. So, you know, insofar as you started to see data showing, gosh, you know, we're starting to see unemployment tick up, we're starting to see some mass layoffs, you're starting to see auto loan and student loan delinquencies tick up, and you're starting to see some of those refis get into trouble. I think you pretty much very quickly see a Federal Reserve response to that. They want to deflate. I don't think they necessarily want to cause a recession. And they're trying to dance this delicate little dance to a soft landing on a very, very narrow landing, right, with our aeroplane of the US economy. But I do look at the US economy and see that there is monetary policy room for maneuver as well. You know, you can always reverse Q QT, right? You can you can either switch it off or you can go back to QE. And it's interesting to see Japan now dance that dance, given what's going on with the yen. So I think that there is enough flexibility and room for maneuver to try and land the plane safely. But yeah, absolutely. The, the risks are high. And that's why I started off by saying I have complete respect for people who are calling a near-term US recession because I could act absolutely make that argument. I just need to sort of go with a conviction call. And, and at the moment, just given the labor market, we're on the side of no recession near term. And that US GDP print was helpful because it just made me sleep that little bit better at night seeing the, the near term strength. So besides what we've talked about already in the treasuries, the bond market, we talked about GDP growth, we talked about you know consumer debt. Are there other issues that investors and or operators should be thinking about as it relates to the economic environment and what might be coming that you're either studying and, and have a view on or you're hearing from your investors? I mean, I think, no, I think I would say that interest rates are really it. It's all about what is the pass through. And for those of us in in the institutional world, it's, it's what is going to go on to bank balance sheets. How are the banks going to deal with that? And when do some of those assets come to market and give us some price discovery? I think everyone's waiting for price discovery and appraisals to move to get some liquidity back into the market. I think another really interesting thing looking at the United States from a global perspective is just what a high proportion of bank balance sheets are exposed to CRE debt. Other than the US, it's Sweden, a very small European economy, but it's no surprise to me that when you look at the two economies that had issues with banks this year or issues with you know, major financial market ructions, it, it was Sweden and the US related to real estate. So I think we get a lot of questions around what are the banks doing? When will the banks start lending again? You know, even if the Fed started cutting rates tomorrow, it doesn't mean that you're suddenly going to get more attractively priced and higher volumes of debt coming out of the banks because they are going through, to take it back to the start of that call, that generational technology hitting real estate. Wow, we've now got to deal with a whole bunch of office debt. So there's a lot to work through. And we get a lot of questions on what is the timing of that and, and when do we start to see some some kind of normal debt market? Without boiling the ocean, and I do want to segue into some of the market fundamentals, which I think is related specifically around office, is there like a specific point of view that you have on 
when we are going to see price discovery, you know, timing of the banks, you know, either taking back assets or disposing of assets from their balance sheets that makes sense to share? Is it too market to market and asset to asset at this stage? Yeah, it probably is a bit too specific, but I would say that this is all very human stuff, right? So people have been and are handing back keys to banks. Banks have got to look at their talent and say, hey, we need you to switch over to the special servicing team. We've got to train you up because we didn't do this for a while. And then they've got to make a judgment on when they're spitting stuff out to a market that, you know, we just said we're not predicting a recession, but from a liquidity perspective, liquidity is at GFC levels, right? We're in a liquidity drought. So they've got to make a decision on how they do that. I mean, maybe the one thing I would say to your listeners who are predominantly US-based is there's another major sort of transatlantic divide here because we are on the cusp of seeing the Basel III bank regulations come in. They are more punitive to commercial real estate and how much equity banks have to hold against those loans. And it does feel anecdotally when we're talking to some of our partners in in the banking world that the US regulators are taking an easier view of when and how to apply those than the Europeans so far. So the European regulators seem to be going very fast and hard, whereas the US, maybe because of what happened with SVB and what happened earlier this year, are just saying, yes, we're we absolutely going to comply, but we're going we're gonna to get there in a slightly gentler way because we don't want systemic risk in the system. And I think all of those regulators in the US and globally, but certainly in the US, live in the memory of the GFC and they live in the fear of something becoming systemic. So they are going to try and manage commercial real estate and office in particular so that it's a problem for office, but it's not a problem for the wider US banking system. And everything I saw in the wake of SVB convinces me that that's the approach they're taking. And thank goodness, frankly. Do you think that that's a reasonable approach? And maybe let's start the the discussion on market fundamentals with the office sector. I know that with a global footprint, it's inevitable that some portion of your holdings are office. But what are you seeing either you know in your own portfolio with the office assets that you own or more broadly with the data that you track vis-a-vis office? And, and maybe let's just start by you know kind of the quick hit on region by region, and then we can drill down into a few kind of specifics on office in particular just since it is such a hot button issue. Asia Pacific is very interesting and diverse because in parts of Asia, like China, they never left the office to go back to it. So return to office is not an issue. Although interestingly, our chief investment officer just came back from Japan and said, even there, they're talking about work from home and what the employees want, which is fascinating because there'd been a presumption that they live in such micro small apartments that they'd want to get out and go to the office. So I think it is probably more of a universal issue than we thought. But certainly the adjustment seems softer there, ex-Australia, New Zealand, so Asia, it feels like a softer adjustment. In Europe, we would also argue that it's a softer adjustment than the US, but still painful. Don't get me wrong, still very, very painful if you own commodity office. For the reason that we tend to live in smaller cities, even our capital cities are much smaller than the typical American city. They tend to have good mass transit, people cycling, they walk in. So the perception around mass transit isn't an issue. They tend to be lower rise offices. And partly because we've had sort of more onerous sustainability regulation, they tend to be newer builds, maybe with better air quality. So that sort of the wellness factor, all those factors that would go into smart amenitized office are more present in the stock. That said, believe you me, there's a big tail of commodity office in Europe as well as the US, and and we certainly wouldn't want to be exposed to it. But the US feels at the extreme, particularly those gateway coastal markets, they feel like they have the biggest adjustment to go through. And I think it's going to be incredibly painful because 
the idea that we're going to retrofit a bunch of this stuff and make it mixed use or residential, very expensive to do so. And I think there will be developers out there who are waiting for it to be spat out from special services at especially at essentially land value, who are then going to come in and, and demolish to rebuild. But that's going to be a multi-year process to get to those sorts of level of distress selling to enable that that sort of repurposing to happen. So I think it's going to be pretty, pretty nasty. And in fairness, I think we saw a little of this coming even pre-pandemic. We could just see the trends in, for us, it was all about sustainability and and what the specs were of true grade A. So we tried to down, dial down our office exposure because we just thought there was sort of hidden obsolescence out there. But my goodness, the pandemic and everyone working on Zoom and going remote, that, that took us, I mean, the, the acceleration of that trend was one of the most dynamic and dramatic things I've seen in, in 2015 four years of being in this industry. Do you do you have a perspective on what percentage of the office stock, at least in the US, you think is kind of functionally obsolete versus, you know, I don't know if functionally obsolete is one category, commodity is another because maybe there's hope and then grade A, highly amenitized, premium is is a third <laughs> category. How do, you, how do you think about the dispersion around? How do you around classify the, it? I can't give you precise answers on all of those, but I will tell you that our phenomenal US research team working with our head of commercial, Sandra Wenger, came up with categories of what it thought the the specifications of, you know, that smart amenitized future-proof office looked like. And then they ran some code through, through CoStar and came up with, okay, this is our selection of what we think. If you just wanted the best of the best, this is what the investable universe is. And it was a tiny single digit tranche of the overall office database. And that to me, A, is meaningful because we can now forecast that and say, okay, we know the overall office market is going to look horrible, but actually this sliver is holding up for leasing. And this sliver we think is going to have amazing rent growth and NOI growth. So it enabled us to underwrite investing counter-cyclically in some office. But it also gave us the opportunity, right? Because if that truly is how small that portion is, there is a phenomenal opportunity for some brave value-add and enhanced return people to go out and either build it ground up all where profitable to do those conversions, because I promise you that with construction really volumes across sectors down very harsh this year, in about 27, 28, there is going to be an extreme lack of demand for good space across categories, but particularly for this kind of office, because it it stands to reason if we're if we're in a knowledge economy, which the US is, and you want to attract people to your workplace and in, in, in still culture. And learning, you're going to have to have an office that's pretty, pretty cool and attractive and gets people in. So I think there's an opportunity. But yeah, that sliver, that top sliver is single digit at best on our view. And we had a pretty high bar for what, what fell into that category. Do you have a sense of what the spread is between, say, you know, that single digit premium, premium, premium office stock and kind of everything else, maybe commodity stock would be from either a an occupancy perspective or you know a re- rental growth perspective is there kind of a an order of magnitude spread that you're seeing well i think it depends on the on the metric that you're looking at so i think that's almost too broad to answer and it also depends on the market and the tightness of the market so you've got you've got markets in sort of the smiles sunbelt that have gone back to work and where those spreads would be smaller and I think that there is going to be a room for some of that commodity space, as you say, that isn't functionally obsolescent, but that, that will compete on price. 
and there isn't the best location. There will be small businesses that that go there. So I think it, that really will vary widely. But you certainly don't want to be. I think the punishment for getting it wrong and not being quite in commodity and being in functionally obsolescent is severe, right? And we saw this before. You know, my background was in is in European real estate. We were one of the largest unlisted owners of malls going into sort of 2015, 16 in Europe. And we knew the best of the best would survive. And it has. It's traded beautifully, even as the valuations have been knocked. But it's traded brilliantly. The commodity, some of it's done okay, but the punishment for getting wrong of where that line falls has been harsh. And I think that's the danger of still thinking, yeah, you know, some of there is some hope in some of that commodity because I think getting that wrong and I think trying to predict where that line is when corporate occupiers themselves aren't really sure. And that's what amazes me when I talk to my colleagues in CBRE in the global workplace solutions teams, and they're advising these corporate tenants day by day and partners with them in their space requirements. And it's as hard for the, the tenants as for us to pass that where that's going to be. And I think we're, we're just in a moment of extreme volatility. Well, office is obviously one of the most interesting and exciting asset classes because uh, real estate people love to to talk about it and and obviously you know many many own it and and there's a lot of uncertainty as you say without going kind of asset class by asset class or submarket by submarket what are some of the other interesting trends that you're seeing around asset classes in the US whether it be retail which you mentioned logistics which you touched or industrial which you touched on a little bit earlier kind of how would you paint that picture for our listeners specific to the US and and what you're seeing on an asset class by asset class basis Got it. Well, I would say they all serve different purposes in the portfolio. I think in a higher bond yield world and a higher inflation world, I suspect, I mean, I'm going like from least preferred to most preferred. So we just done office, which is least preferred. Although within that, I think life science medical office, there's a slightly different story to be told. But if you then look at retail, I think some people globally are going to start having a little bit of a look at it. Because if you believe my initial thesis that there are these three big generational changes, geopolitical, monetary policy and technology, well, in retail, a lot of that's happened. So if you have an amazingly performing piece of retail that survived a recession, a pandemic, it's traded well, you might be tempted to go in for the high income return. And I think the trick is going to be separating the value trap to the true value. And I think in a U.S. context specifically, we would not be looking at malls, but we would be looking at some of that neighborhood and community center stock that for years for us has been expensive when we look at risk adjusted returns. But now it kind of feels like it's getting towards fair value. So maybe being very discriminating, you'd look at some of that. So that would be our sort of, you know, the, the sector up from office. And then you get into living and logistics. And I would say... Of of those two, probably living is the one we prefer most. Residential, whether it's multifamily, single family rentals, student living, senior housing, we can make a compelling case, have been for seven years and will continue to make the case that there is a structural under supply for all of it, almost everywhere. And the beauty of the US market from a global perspective is that you have, you know, portfolios of this stuff in a quantum that you don't have in Europe and parts of Asia Pacific. You have big student housing portfolios and single family rentals. So you can actually execute the strategy that you like, which isn't always possible everywhere else. So we really love residential. We think that the demographic tailwinds, the affordability issues, the need for professionally managed stock 
is there. And technology is a help because suddenly you can take a portfolio of SFR and using technology in the way in which you can manage it and lease it, the costs of operating it have come down. So that's a beautiful position to be in. And then last but not least, I think is logistics, which we all fell in love with, right? And hopefully some of us sooner than others and built up our logistics portfolios. And it's gone through this period of super normal growth. The rent growth has been phenomenal. The vacancy rates have been insane, especially if you're in somewhere like Inland Empire. And in that period of super normal growth, the price of everything went up. So the premium between the best of the best and the kind of 90s built and 70s built, the yield premium, the cap rate premium really compressed to very historically low levels because we all just wanted to build our portfolios. And we feel that this is a sector that we love. So living and logistics for us are the two sectors of choice. But we think that investors should be very cognizant that this is also a sector where technological disruption is going to hit both positive and negative, and that there are people who will be left holding assets that are maybe only 10 years old, that kind of have some obsolescence or aren't quite keeping up with the tenant demand that's out there. And that just as you would want to be in the best of the best office, you should actually want the same for logistics and that that kind of cap rate premium is going to widen again. And when I speak to logistics, I'm talking about stuff like the ability to have, you know, the, the, the pallets pulled out by robots rather than people running back and forth in an Amazon warehouse. You don't need to have the little narrow corridor for the forklift to go down. And that means you can put 20% more goods in your warehouse. Well, does the floor thickness cope with that extra density? Does the roof cope with solar? Can you provide the EV energy for your now EV fleet of trucks? There's a lot of technological change coming. And I feel that those, what used to be really pejoratively known as just like sheds or boxes, right? Like so simple industrial is becoming more and more complex and needs a really kind of sophisticated manager to run it. So yes, office is feeling it, but just keep, like I said at the start, just keep that logistics sector in your peripheral vision as well, because there's a really strong modern versus legacy story that is going to emerge more and more in that sector too. Like so many things, a tale of multiple markets and multiple sub-asset classes, but it's certainly interesting. I, it's the first time I've heard, and, and maybe I've been living under a rock, but I like the, uh, the the moniker of living in logistics. It kind of rolls off the tongue. So I'll have to use okay, that going well, forward if you don't mind. Eds, eds and, and sheds for so long, like, you know, we have to we have to brand it some way. But, you know, there's a reason why the research team in the US, they forecast modern versus legacy office. And they forecast modern versus legacy logistics to help our underwriting. And I think that's very telling, you know, what people choose to forecast and the way they choose to segment the market, I think is always very insightful. Well, we could spend an hour just on that topic. But before we move off of market fundamentals, a few few other quick hits, because I think your view is is interesting. You cover infrastructure, and that's a increasingly popular topic among you know real assets allocators, obviously. Maybe help us understand kind of what's happening with infrastructure and where are you seeing the growth in the sector from a global perspective? Since I know infrastructure, you know, t- tends to be extraordinarily large projects and, and we're building those all over the world. But how does that manifest itself from an institutional investor's both ability to invest in appetite, given where we are in the evolution of the, the asset class? Yeah, I mean, infrastructure is having a phenomenal moment right now, both in terms of government's willingness to really underwrite massive infra projects where none have taken place for decades in in the US and Europe. 
and it's having its moment. And I think it's partly because if you look at the way that a lot of the income is structured in some of these big projects once they're on, it really has long-term inflation protection characteristics that are at a premium in the current and in our view ongoing macro backdrop. So we can see why that's advantageous. I think it is interesting coming back to that Basel III comment I made that you know, infra is not being treated in as punitive a way as commercial real estate. So one could imagine a debt market environment that is slightly more advantageous for infra relative to real estate. But I think also because I always think about the investment world, as, especially for us, because we're very long-term investors, is trying to play these big, long secular trends and not getting over cute on timing. And infra just seems like this perfect place to play two of the biggest. The first being this you know, digital revolution 4.0, what I don't know, don't know what number we're on right now, but the rise of generative AI, the need for incredible increases in digital infrastructure, and also just energy to power this stuff, right? I mean, there is such a structural need for that. So we love anything to do with digital infra. And then we also love renewables. And we think that, you know, this move towards sustainability in certain parts of the world with very ambitious net zero targets, there is a huge need to rebuild out our infra to cater to that. And so we love an environment where there is big structural demand, where there's maybe a slightly easier lending environment than that that we're facing in real estate and a contractual norm that meets the new macro new normal that I was talking about right, of higher for longer and higher inflation. It, it just feels like, you know, a trifecta of, of reasons to be allocating towards infra. And there's a reason why we created an infra sleeve in our business sort of seven-ish years ago. And would you say that opportunity is kind of equal on a on a global basis across North America, Europe, Asia Pacific, or are you seeing it more opportunity in one particular region versus another? I think probably equal, but different, right? I mean, I think that digital infra story plays globally. I think in actually, I would argue actually even the sustainability and renewable story plays globally as well, right? That need for infra is there. I would argue maybe that, maybe unfairly actually, it feels like the capital flows have been weaker in infra. You know, everything's been hit right by the bond yields rising and people stepping back and trying to reassess what the return level is. You know, I spoke earlier about product architecture and what are we offering investors to be compelling? The other thing I would say about infra is it's kind of where real estate was 20 years ago in 2000 when I joined, which is less frequent valuations, less external, you know, how do you value some of these investments? Some of them have the air of being private equity. So, you know, investors who are new to the sector or getting into it more have to sort of wrap their head around and, and to a certain extent get comfortable with that, right? We've been used to over the last 20 years is increasing professionalization and transparency in real estate where valuations are more frequent and are more responsive to what's happening in the markets. And it's been fascinating to me dipping my toe into infra and trying to recruit and, and create an infra research team because we didn't have one before and looking at infrastructure data. It really reminds me of 2000 in real estate because you're just you're just scrabbling around for primary data. You know, we, we started doing infrastructure forecasting this quarter and we were like, does anyone do it? Can we buy it from someone else? How do you know? We're like, no, God, we're going to have to do it ourselves because you can't do that stuff. So it does feel like there's a lot of catch up there in terms of transparency. But my goodness, if you wanted to create an asset class for this macro environment, look at Infra. Well, I remember you you mentioned before we need to create a, a product mix that's accretive relative to fixed income. So it sounds like maybe Infra is in, clearly in that mix for you guys. 
Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And, and I agree, or we agree. We serve infrastructure managers as well. And when we get under the hood and look at the, the data and the data governance and organization and transparency around reporting, it feels a lot like commercial real estate in North America did in 2014 to 2016, where everything's kind of done in spreadsheets with a focus on the investing side and a lesser focus on the reporting and transparency side. So that means, you know, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for the, for the sector to evolve. Yeah. And in case any of my infra colleagues are listening to this, let me not be mean because we also acknowledge real estate is not where fixed income and equities are. So we're all on this this move up to transparency and, and integrity of data, right? And you, you guys at Juniper Square are part of that mission. Yeah. No, it's 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 important to make you know, real assets uh, an acceptable and, and mainstream part of asset allocation for for global institutional investors. So we have a few minutes left. The, the last area of discussion is you mentioned these three major generational shifts. We talked about the first two, the last one being technology. You were talking about it a little bit just now related to infrastructure, renewables, and computing power and, and infrastructure assets. What are some of the other trends that you're tracking around the impact that technology is having on the built environment and on, you know, commercial real estate and infrastructure in particular, you know, within your portfolio that you're tracking? Look, I think it's honestly top to bottom and it's not just how we operate the real estate. So a lot of what I've spoken about is, you know, how do you operate residential when you can suddenly lease online, you can tour online? How do you um, choose and operate your logistics when you know the tenant is now automating at a rapid pace? And that all speaks to the operator side of our business and our interactions with our tenants and, and how they move through our space. But I think it also speaks to us very holistically as, as, a, as an investment manager. It's going to change every aspect of how we underwrite, how can we bring technology to bear to making a decision? And I'm so excited about some of the work our quant team's doing in enabling our fund managers to have cutting edge tools that enable them to do market selection, stock selection, and really underwrite to the highest possible standards. And then once you bought the stuff to monitor it ongoing, right, to have that portfolio oversight and, and to look at risk with a sophistication that's commensurate to what our colleagues in equities and fixed income do. And the ability to handle data, to manipulate it, interrogate it, and draw our insights has just come on leaps and bounds. I think I've seen more progress in the last 18 months on that score in real assets than I have in the last 18 years of my career. So personally, I'm like super excited about it, but I think it will cause, I think it, it can cause, you know, any changes is nervous making, right? For people who have done it always a certain way. But I just see the productivity of this, this industry, this investment management industry, particularly in real assets, being unleashed. Because the biggest thing holding us back was how to deal with our scruffy, messy, incomplete data. And we finally have the computing power, the tools and the skills to kind of break through that barrier and, and take ourselves to the next level. So I think it's, it's not just our assets. It's going to be us as an investment management structure that is fundamentally changed. It's it's fascinating when I talk to other investment managers and clearly you're at the leading edge of this. It's, you know, data is the new the new currency, right? I mean, the ability to prosecute the data and make decisions off of the data is truly what will set the best investors apart from everybody else going forward. Absolutely. So, Sabina, we've we've had a wide-ranging conversation that, you know, in this environment I hope is not irrelevant in a week from now, but I think a lot of what we've talked about is 
is super durable regarding your views. I guess just in closing, I mean, given the really unique position that you sit in leading the intelligence and insights team with a background in research sitting in the UK, but covering global markets and having the ability to talk to your internal stakeholders as well as external. What's one question that you feel like people aren't asking enough? It's not one of the most frequently asked questions, but it's on your mind. And you're kind of like scratching your head saying, gee, you know, why is nobody asking about X? Or I really wish people would think about Y because it's going to have a huge impact. I think up until about a year ago, the answer to that question would probably be have been one of demographics or technological change, like on the way we work. But I feel those have now come to the, the forefront. And I think in a sense, the release of ChatGPT was phenomenal because it just, I didn't have to talk about stuff at a basic level because that primer was already out there. And then it was more, how do we apply it? You didn't have to start from scratch. I think the question now, I actually think it's that logistics one, you know, I think people are so fixated on office and understandably it's a huge part of legacy portfolios. It's a huge part of US bank balance sheets. It's kind of whenever you see real estate on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, it's typically not a good thing. We're not a front page story. It's typically a bad thing. And those office headlines have been breaking through into the mainstream news. But I would ask people because we've been so in love with logistics to really think meaningfully and deeply and interrogate, you know, what's what's the state of your logistics portfolio and what is the opportunity as an office? If only a small sliver is that best in class feature proof, what is that opportunity to really upgrade and rebuild that stock? So that's maybe the one that I think, yeah, it's like people are kind of thinking about it, but it's not maybe as at the forefront as it should be. Well, on that note, if our listeners want to either read, you know, find more about you, your research, get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Do you have a LinkedIn or Twitter or X, I guess, or, you know, a company webpage that's a good resource for people to check out? Company webpage is always a great place to start. So look for CBRE Investment Management. I'm on LinkedIn, Sabina Reeves, but I'm also on, I guess, X now, Sabina underscore underscore Reeves. So yeah, you can find me there. Excellent. Well, Sabina, thank you so much for indulging the wide range of questions and topics we've covered today. It's super insightful for me and I enjoyed having you on the distribution. So thank you for joining me. Well, thank you so much for having me on and all the work you're doing to help us move to that next level of technological enablement. It's an exciting time for us. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Distribution by Juniper Square. If you like today's podcast, please share it with a colleague or a friend. And don't forget to subscribe and rate The Distribution on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with me on LinkedIn by going to www.linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash B Sedloff. Or you can find me on Twitter at B Sedloff. You can also find a video recording of this conversation on demand at juniperquare.com forward slash the dash distribution. Until next time.